Welcome to Loading Dock Talks, where all the juiciest conversations happen. I'm Chef Prithi Mystery, and every week we talk to one of my favorite food folks about their lives, food, and social justice, and we do a little shit talking too. One thing that's interesting, being a queer, like, masculine of center chef of color, which is a lot to say, but not only is it a unique space to occupy, but I think my experiences just vary because of my identity. This past week, I had a really long Instagram message conversation with a former line cook that I worked with. He contacted me this week because he has been hearing all this stuff in the news about uh, pronouns and gender identity. And, you know, he was like, hey, hermana, that's what they all called me. He was trying to understand it. And he's like, but I just always thought of you as like a woman who liked women. And I was like, yes, that's my sexual orientation. But you also kind of treated me like one of the guys. Am I right? And he's like, yeah, like it was starting to connect in his head where I was like, yeah, so like if I was a woman who liked women, but I looked more like, you know, my wife, you might have had a different experience with that and how you would relate to me. And he got it of, you know, the difference between gender and sexual orientation and how like, yeah, there was never anything said. And at that time, you know, I didn't even know that gender pronouns like they them existed um this was like 2003 but i inherently knew that the way that all the guys in that kitchen treated me was you know i remember actually when they hired a cis straight woman and all the giggly boy laughter and excitement in the kitchen (laughs) it was clearly very different you know and i think that that is You know, a lot of people would often ask me like, oh, God, it must have been so hard being queer in the kitchen. And I my response has always been like, I mean, yes, of course, when you start talking about getting treated seriously in the larger industry and media and all of those kinds of things, for sure, being a queer brown woman is not helpful. But when you're a line cook in the right environment, all these broskies are just like, oh, yeah, you like women, too. Like, you know, don't blame you. They're hot. Like. (laughs) And that was kind of the end of it. It was just like very much I was treated like one of the guys. In a lot of ways, there was safety in that. But then at the same time, there was a feeling of like you also get sort of pigeonholed. And unfortunately, in our racist industry where you're seen just like all those other brown guys. I'm saying this in quotes. And you're like a worker. You're not seen by the chef and leadership as somebody who's going to move up the ranks and become the sous chef or chef de cuisine or go on to open your own groundbreaking, brilliant restaurant. You're just there to, like, be a cog in a wheel. And so I think that that's that's probably one of the harder uh, obstacles to kind of get around is being seen as someone who has potential. I guess that's why, for me... I drank the Kool-Aid when I first started in the industry and believed that somehow the restaurant and kitchen world was a meritocracy because I guess when I first started out, I was sort of warmly embraced in environments where I was still on the bottom of the rung. I was embraced by a certain amount of mostly men of color, some white guys. So it wasn't until I started moving up the ladder that the barriers of being a queer woman of color chef really, like, came in strong and (laughs) reared (laughs) their ugly head at the James Beard House. They do a number of different dinners, and this one is annually the iconoclast dinner, and it is all chefs of color as well as psalms and cocktail folks, beverage folks, um, which in and of itself was, like, the most powerful experience from the fact that we were 
so like the the vibe in the kitchen was like there was no like elbowing or competitive like sniffing around other people's mise en place like oh what are you doing with some like kind of attitude it was just like love 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 I remember at the end of the night, like after desserts went out and we were all kind of packing up our stuff and chit-chatting with guests and um, Chef J.J. Johnson, who had done the dinner before, and uh, Chef uh, Preston Clark, who is the son of Patrick Clark, who's like the first black uh, French chef in New York, they had come to the dinner because they'd been a part of it previously. And and so we were all kind of gathered around in the kitchen and J.J. Uh, you know, was pouring everyone who wanted it a shot of some like, you know, fancy scotch or bourbon or something. And it was just like, I'm probably gonna like get emotional when I say this, but like, he stopped and he looked at all of us and he was like, look around you right now. This place does not look like this every day. And yeah, I'm getting emotional saying it. But it I mean, it really, it it really struck me in such a beautiful way. Because there's so, so few opportunities and moments like that that exist for professionals at our level. And yeah, then I met Zoe, who was bopping around everywhere. <laughs> I was like, who is this character from London? That was uh, three years ago. It feels like a thousand years ago. And we have stayed in contact with each other. We've tried to see each other whenever possible. And also just, uh, you know, being queer women of color, both masculine and of center, I think uh, we, we share a lot in common when we just chat on the phone about things. And it's, it's often that it's not the experience of a lot of our peers, uh, whether they be queer women, white women or um, women chefs, etc. And I just have been on the, you know, rampage to get her to America because I know she wants to come here and I want to spend more time hanging out with her and cooking with her and learn from each other. Because I think that, um, you know, Zoe's expertise in African ingredients and in Ghanaian food in particular is something that I don't really know much about at all. But I know that there's a lot of intersections with Indian cuisine and I feel like the two of us cooking together and just sharing different ingredients that we both work with is a really valuable and satisfying professional exchange. So here's my chat with Chef Zoe Ajonio. I'd love to dig in on some more historical aspects of your life. One thing I've been trying to do with a lot of my guests is talk a little bit about childhood. I think that we spend a lot of time talking about our careers, where we started in our careers and how we got to where we are now. But, you know, it's not often that we talk about the sort of foundational parts of our lives that sort of got us to where we are. And especially as BIPOC chefs, as queer women, I feel like it's even more important because I feel like it's really important that folks know that we're not just like this person that, you know, has all this attention and right. is doing all these things and is, you know, 30, 40 something, but we're once, you know, that five-year-old kid. Yeah. So that's my first question. Five-year-old Zoe. Five-year-old Zoe. Where are you? What are the smells? What are the sounds? What are the tastes? Have I been, if this, I've been hijacked here. Basically, you're doing some inner child work with me on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, this is actually part of my therapy certification. <laughs> Not many people ask me to go that far back. Childhood. Well, let's just call it interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting and chaotic, I think, is how to describe my childhood. I... I have a Ghanaian father and an Irish mother, both immigrants to the UK in the 70s at a time of mm -hmm. no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. So, you know, that narrative in itself kind of is the centering point in terms of my politics and my political identity. Okay. And yeah, so I'm what, five years old. You know, what happened? I mean, I spent a lot of my childhood in Ireland because Ireland was close and cheap to get to and easy to navigate, I suppose, for my mum. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had this kind of little house on the prairie existence in some respects because it was a really rural part of Ireland, Bantry, West Cork, okay. a stunning part of the world. And, you know, I was farming, digging potatoes um, and carrots and, you know, going down fishing in the stream, going to the beach and picking mussels and clams and stuff like that. So I had this kind of really earthy you know, hands in the soil kind of experience, um, very the opposite yeah. of urban London, where I, the rest of my childhood was. I didn't have that 
connection with Ghana, sadly, because I didn't, my dad was a little bit of nomadic in our childhood. Yeah. My dad's a super intelligent guy, you know, super smart. When he was like 12, he won the Commonwealth Writing Prize Mm. and he won a trip to come to England, actually, when he was a teenager. And that kind of, the shiny thing that took him from Ghana to London eventually a couple of years later, you know, to try and make make a fortune for himself. Yeah. But as I said, the context for him was difficult context at the time, despite his incredible intelligence and stuff. So, you know, he went down a path, a nefarious path of criminality, honestly. So he got involved in sort of white collar crime a little bit, things like that. So for a lot of my childhood, my dad wasn't there because he was either on the run (laughs) or in prison. And sometimes I didn't know where he was. And it was Mm -hmm. really hard to get to know him. And so food, the other thing he would bring with him when he was around was food, food from Ghana. So that was like a tool for me to connect with him because I was super interested in that food, knowing that it was from Ghana and knowing that because we didn't have any Ghanaian family in London, you know, I made it very quickly, the food, like my access to that culture and that access to that part of my identity, which I didn't have resource to explore. Um, so I explored it through the food. <laughs> it was a very strange. It, it's really hard to go into detail about it all, but it was an interesting childhood. Let's just say that. Well, also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like an access point where, because you weren't necessarily able to like sit down and like really have a chat with your dad and like you know talk to him about a lot of details in your life. It was a way to sort of access not just your culture but your father. Exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like you made that connection very early on that this was how you could know your Ghanaian heritage. Yeah, from super early age, from like six, well, seven or eight, I think I started being interested in what he was doing because he would cook for himself mm-hmm. as well. He was like really selfish about it. That's that's the view I took <laughs> at the time. God, dad's so selfish, you know. Um, but I think... Well, he give you a taste or something at least. Oh, yeah, but I think we had to bug him about it, you know. Um, <laughs> but he was very much of the frame of mind of probably of wanting us to assimilate. And mm-hmm. for, I don't know, like whenever I tried to get him to teach me tree or fancy or anything really about Ghana, his reply was always, why? Why do you need to know? Mm. And for me as a kid, it was like, well, it should be obvious. But also I didn't know why when I was a kid. I couldn't. <laughs> I didn't have a lexicon. You're like, duh, dad. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, dad, I really need to connect to my ancestral roots through Ghana because I don't have, you know, that was the thing. <laughs> so, you know, but, so, but it just was a tool I used to be close to him. And also, you know, my dad, very academic and very, you know, he, I, I was reading and doing all sorts before, you know, before I went to nursery school. Like, he was very much the uh, academic African dad pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And I thank God that he did that because, you know, it, it served me well throughout my academic career, that kind of dedication to, to knowledge. You know, my parents split up when I was, you know, 13 or 14, something like that. And my mum and my sister left. Mm-hmm. I stayed with my dad and... Um, essentially that meant I stayed on my own because he wasn't really around you know so I'd be cooking dinner for him and like five days later I'd be like dad are you coming home (laughs) it's like where are you so when you're 13 and you're living with your dad and you're cooking for him whether he comes home for the dinner or not (laughs) (laughs) I'm really curious just as a you know former Londoner where what neighborhood and what part of London you're in but also um what are you cooking as a teen I'm in southeast London Okay. In Woolwich, um, mm-hmm. which at the time I couldn't wait to escape from. <laughs> you know, Woolwich was a pretty deprived area in the 80s. It had a lot of immigrants mm-hmm. there, but they were kind of, they weren't the, the dominant population. So it was a very white working class mm-hmm. environment. And, you know, I, I would go into Woolwich and the, I don't know if you know what the British National Party or the National Front are, but they're extreme right um, yes. racist groups. And... <laughs> You know, I was surrounded by those as a kid, like going, mm-hmm. walking into Woolwich and getting abuse all the time from these skinheads and stuff was very common. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and also it was just really poor. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult, honestly, for me to, to find the black community to be part of. Having access to black culture as a, kid, as a kid generally was quite difficult. When do you feel like that changed for you? When do you feel like you were able to be at a, a, an age where you could sort of like have your own agency 
to access Black community and culture beyond your father as a sort of gatekeeper? Secondary school was a revelation because, Mm. um, you know, the kids in the upper years at secondary school, there was quite a big black population. And I remember being like almost overwhelmed by that because I was thinking, where are they? Like, where have they come from? Like, why don't I know the, do you know what I mean? But also, you know, secondary school was really difficult for me because I had a lot of white friends Mm. and there seemed to be like this invisible line in the playground. And in, you know, it was like, that's white people are over here, black people are over there, and that's how it is. Mm-hmm. And I found that extremely difficult to navigate because, you know, my mum was white. Um, I had a lot of white friends. You know, I wanted to have more black friends, but also it felt, didn't feel very welcoming. Mm. And I got, I think I got a lot of stick. Well, not I think, I know I did, for having as many white friends as I did. It felt for me as a kid, it was really threatening and it was really difficult because I really really that was something I really wanted to have connection with and be a part of but it felt like Mm -hmm. I could only have it in like really small doses so I had a a really small set of black African friends Mm -hmm. and there's not one reason for this but I didn't necessarily always feel fully included somehow yeah you know yeah yeah when I went to sixth form so our sixth form is like from 16 to 18 pre-uni you know, that same division was there in the canteen. It's like the black people are on one side of the room and the white people are on the other side of the room. I was like, oh, fuck this, not again. Do you know what I mean? It's like... So where does Zoe sit? <laughs> exactly. Honestly, I avoided the canteen as much as I could because I just didn't want to have mm-hmm. to make those choices. It's like, that's not who I am. It's like Makes I'm sense. friends with people that I like and are interesting and people who like me and think I'm interesting. And it wasn't really about picking a colour for me. It was been impossible to for me, you know, like yeah. But in college, I started to navigate it more and more, and then we're all babies, right? Even up until that point, and there's so much going on for us developing. You know, I, I was yet to come out. I was, you know, grappling with my sexual not grappling with my sexuality so much. I knew what my sexuality was, but it's like, how do I tell people about this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was grappling with that. I was also grappling with who I wanted to be in the world and what I wanted to do. Because my dad was very determined that I'd be a lawyer and do law. And I really wanted to do English and be a writer. And I was like having that battle with him <laughs> remotely. <laughs> you know, he was adv- advising me on my career from prison. But then, you know, when it got to university, he was advising me on my career from hospital. At that point, he became ill. Mm-hmm but he was still very influential in my life, which is kind of weird because I was 18, but he was like, I don't know. I, don't, I think there's a particular thing about immigrants' parents and their power over you, you know, because you understand how much they've sacrificed and yeah. you understand um, how important it is for their dream mm-hmm. to be realised, you know, and you kind of, part of you wants to satisfy that, but the other part of you wants to be yourself and do your own thing and make your own way in the world. Anyway, I ended up doing law and I had a great time at the University of Greenwich, you know, made some amazing friends and I I learned a lot, but um, it wasn't the path that I wanted for myself. But it sounds like this part of making a difference became something that was important to you through this time. Was that what sort of drew you to ending up doing that, aside from your father encouraging to you? But like then from there what's your sort of departure point from law where it seems to me, you know, making a difference seems to be a big part? Yeah. I mean, making an impact and making a difference, I think maybe were always important to me because Mm. I was constantly frustrated by my parents' condition and I was Mm -hmm. constantly aware of the limitations forced upon them by their immigrant status um, or poverty. Or, or, you know, my my mum left school when she was 14 to come to England. Um, yeah. because she had to, you know, she had to work. To work. Um, so all, uh, do you know what I mean? Like just knowing all of that stuff is like, wow, this world sucks. And why mm. does it have to be so hard for certain people? And I don't like that and I want to change it. So I was always motivated by that. So I guess in my twenties, then it was like, okay, so I'm not going to be a lawyer. So what am I going to do? And honestly, I kind of got a bit of license. One of my tutors, um, Edward, had told me, and we used to like smoke spliffs and hang out, and he was such a chill, excellent man. <laughs> but he was also at the, high, the top of his profession. 
an amazing barrister, like a senior on the Law Council of England. And and he told me that he'd spent, in between getting his law degree and now, essentially, which uh-huh. was, you know, 10 years later, he'd just been bumming around the world, experiencing life and in, and learning and being curious and and when I heard him tell me that, I was like, oh, okay, so I can, I don't have to decide right now what I'm doing forever. Mm. I can, I can like spread my wings a bit and check it all out. So that's why I did, honestly, for 10 years. You feel like because he was someone you respected and admired and the fact that he shared this with you made you feel like it, it gave you permission in a way to not have to have it all figured out right away? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I got lots of good jobs. I, I was going to these interviews because mm-hmm. I was trying to get jobs that served this idea of helping people, but that also let mm-hmm. me maybe write or let me do these other things. And I was getting the jobs, but then I was like, oh, that's not what I want to do. Because I don't want anything that puts me in an office for too long or has this rigid structure around it. Um, anyway, I ended up moving to Brighton to start a record label. So where does food come in? It doesn't come until 2010. When I come back to London, I started my own like event production company, right? So I was putting on music events. And then in the queer space, I was taking people from Brighton to London for these big benders at the indie gay clubs in London. So I was always doing like events and... You're like an urban entertainment tour guide? Basically, yeah. (laughs) Um, I was like, to the people in Brighton, I was like, you think this is gay culture? Come with me! (laughs) But I was about to turn 30 and I realised that I didn't have a career. So I was like, shit, what are you doing? You're just like bouncing around, having an amazing time, but you're not, you know, you need to sort your shit out. That, mm. you know, everyone has that moment when they're 30. And so I came back to London and I started getting serious and I took a proper job. The crash happened, I got made redundant and then I went travelling around the States. Now, what I will say is that what consistently happened over that period was me cooking for my friends, Right. Okay. So I did I did that from childhood, cooking for my friends. Mm-hmm. And I was always cooking my dad's food, Ghanaian food, because mm-hmm. that's what I love to cook on those occasions. So that was the consistent thing about food was me cooking for people and cooking that food. I was a bit broke, honestly, because I spent all of the money having an amazing time. Yeah. But I live yeah. in East London now, which is Hackney Wick. And there used to be this um, event, this annual festival of the arts in Hackney Wick, because it was a really you know, seriously creative place where lots of musicians, yeah. artists and writers live because of cheap rent, because where you live looked like shit. Um, and anyway, warehouses and stuff like Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And um, Hackney Wicked, thousands of people are streaming into this industrial complex, basically, where there's nowhere to eat or drink or anything. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Right. I'm going to make some pocket money. I'm going to make a pot of peanut butter stew. And that's how it started. My friend made a sign saying Zoe's famous peanut butter stew the smell nice. drew people in. Yeah. And before I knew it, I had a massive party outside my front door and people were asking me questions about the food and where it came from. And that set the seed for what would become Ghana Kitchen. But even then, I didn't have any interest in being a chef, being a restaurateur, doing any catering. I was still really focused on writing as my life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was fun. And a year later for the same festival, we did that again, but made it, bigger so I turned instead of my home being used as a video gallery it was we turned it into a restaurant and we made tables Mm. and chairs I got fabric decked it out like it was a proper restaurant and people thought they were in a restaurant it was rammed and people were trying to book for like the next week and two weeks and I was like guys you're in my living room (laughs) that's so funny (laughs) Um, but I'll take your email address and you know if I do it again I'll let you know and what Mm -hmm happened just very organically really quickly was god I love doing this this is really fun I get to introduce people to this cuisine I get to talk to them about Ghanaian culture along the way and I get to bring Mm -hmm. people together you know and organically that just I I realized that I love doing it but also oh hang on this could fund me through my MA so that's what I did I just kept doing that like as monthly um and then you know blogs picked up it press picked it up and then before you knew it I was trying to go to Berlin I was doing events in Berlin. Suddenly, the German press were descending on me in Berlin. And then I was flying back nice. and forth between London and Berlin to cook. And I was like, okay, this is a business. Stop fucking around. What is it? Why does it need to exist? And so around 2011, 2012, I was like, all right, so Zoe's Garner Kitchen is what I'm going to call it. 
And the mission is going to be to bring African food to the masses because the situation was that people, it existed, people just Mm -hmm. didn't know where to find it or what it was. So I, I tried to be the interlocutor, the conduit for that. One of the things that drew me to cooking was uh, cooking for all my friends in my 20s was just pretty much a group of young, you know, post-college queers. And that was so much about community and bringing people together. And I know that's part of Zoe's story. And also being a queer chef isn't, you know, a unique space to occupy. So I was excited to talk to Zoe about her experience being a queer chef and community and how that's affected her career and her outlook and how she cooks. I think about myself also in the queer space of like being in my 20s and, you know, none of us had any money. And so I was the one who just started cooking Mm. Um, and everyone was like, yeah. And, and, you know, so really I I can relate to what you're saying because my my excitement in that moment wasn't like, oh, I want to learn everything about cooking. It was like, oh, wow, look at the way this brings people together. Exactly. You know, that was one of the key things for me was the power of bringing people together, which isn't something I anticipated or expected, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just an incredible feeling to bring strangers together around a meal and have them leave as friends or girlfriends or girlfriend and Mm -hmm. boyfriend or get a work opportunity. Like there's so much power in that. Like people used to email me all the time being, oh my God, I can't believe it. I had so much fun at your supper club and now we're dating. Or, you know, had so much fun at your supper club and I got a job from that guy. And I'm like, oh yeah, amazing. You know? Yeah, you're building community. Yeah. And I used to on purpose actually like separate people who knew each other for the supper club mm. to be like, okay, you sit over there and talk to him. He's lovely. He does X, Y, and Z. You sit over here and talk to her. You're going to get on fabulously. Um, <laughs> yeah, just to make people, to shake it up a bit. Because I didn't want to have a room of people just quietly whispering to each other over there because I don't want anybody else to hear the conversation. You know what it's like? British people are a bit reserved to say the least. And I was just trying to yes. bring people out of themselves, you know. And- we, we used to do the same thing. Even if it was just friends and we had dinner parties, we would like think about each person's personality mm. and like where they should, we'd have place cards. So it was like, okay, let's, you know, let's make sure the two talkative people are like, you know, put one in the center of the table, put one at one end, like, exactly. oh, you know, this couple, they don't need to sit next to each other. What if they just sat across from each other so that they also have other people on the sides of them to talk, you know, we'd kind of like think through different people and who they would get along with or, um, yeah, et cetera. It reminds me of um, Bet, you know, Bet on the L word. When I, do you remember those, oh, that, yeah. that, those scenes where she's like, I mean, she's a bit over the top with it. But yeah, you know, we are. <laughs> it's a television show. <laughs> is it just us? Is, is it lesbians? Are we super controlling around the dynamics of a dinner table? I don't think so. I think it, maybe it's just women in a way because it's sort of like. I feel like we notice dynamics that other people don't, mm. or like, I know how, like, I notice. Whenever, like, there's a group of women and a man enters that social, you know, whatever, conversation, the dynamic immediately changes. Yeah, I agree. But also, Um, I do think it's part of our queer intelligence a little bit. I did write about this for Brian Terry's new book a little bit. I think that queer people instinctively know how to bring the right elements together because we've kind of had to... I don't know, I just feel like the experience of navigating so much code switching and um, hostile environments and microaggressions. microaggressions and learning, you know, how to please the, the piper, you know, mm-hmm. y- you can learn. I think we, we, we get really good really quickly at learning how to, to, to navigate dynamics in a way that makes other people feel comfortable if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like in some ways it's a, it's a sort of defense safety mechanism of like, you know, being able to suss out a situation and know whether it's safe or not. Yeah. Um, when you talk about code switching, like, can I be my whole self here or do I need to just be exactly. a compartment of myself? And so, yeah, I think that there's, you know, I, I totally agree with you. It, it is kind of, yeah, there's like a safety in doing that. I wanted to ask what your experience has been specifically being a queer chef in the industry. Yeah, this year, for the first time ever, uh-huh. 
people want to talk about this, which I think is great, because normally people are like, oh, you're a woman in food. Only last year were they interested in the fact I was a black woman in food. Now they're interested generally in me being also (laughs) queer, which is nice. Hello, all my intersections. My experience as a queer woman in food, well, as you know, you know, I'm not formally trained. Um, I didn't come up through the restaurant traditional model. Yeah. So my interaction with homophobia or potential homophobia and misogyny has been quite limited, thankfully. Mm. In street food, which is like used to be a big part of what Ghana Kitchen did, mobile catering. Yeah. In that industry, there is hella misogyny mm. um, and chauvinism and inappropriateness all across the board, really, in the UK. To some degree, homophobia as well. But, you know, the festival crowd are a little bit more loose, actually. Yeah. You know, when I opened um, in Brixton, I opened a restaurant in Brixton. And, you know, I was trying to hire male chefs because I felt like um, I felt I needed, well, I felt I needed chefs. Okay. um, And men were applying. Turns out I didn't need that kind of thing. But what, you know, what I needed was women who were passionate about food. And that's who I ended up hiring. But quite often in those dynamics when I did hire men it was difficult for them to take instruction from me even though they didn't have any knowledge whatsoever on the cuisine Mm -hmm. I think mostly it's it's that it's men not liking a woman with a strong voice and purpose that I've come up against the most and you know there's been the occasional stupid remark or you know oh is your wife fit maybe we can have a threesome you know bullshit like Mm -hmm. that there's been so much of that the difference is actually where it makes a difference for me in my career has been when it's been access to finance because I've seen, mm. you know, most of the time when I've been in a room where other where investors might be, I've been the only woman and I've been the only okay. black woman and I've been the only mm-hmm. queer. And I can tell, because obviously as well, it may not be obvious to the listener, but I'm sure it's obvious to you, that mostly those people are white old men or older men. Right. And they are intimidated by me. I'm a six foot mm-hmm. black lesbian with big hair and a, you know, an opinion. If I were the type of woman, which I've seen a lot of in the food industry, who flirts their way to success or flirts yeah. their way to a contact or, you know, I don't have that tool at my disposal. And that was made apparent to me very quickly. Like it adds another limitation because if they don't think they can fuck you <laughs> or flirt mm-hmm. with you, yeah, and totally. They're less inclined to to talk to you, honestly. And especially well, they just kind of ignore you, right? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. That's 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 it. Well, spot on. So it's been limiting in terms of my access to certain parts of mm-hmm. the industry, but I haven't had to deal very much full on with people, you know, giving me abuse because, as I say, I'm not, not the person that would take it, and I think most people know that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might share a little bit of that. In common. I'm curious because I've often said this, that you were talking about when you have hired men in your kitchen and you didn't specify about race, but I've often said that straight white men can't last in my kitchen. Oh yeah. They they never lasted very long in mine either. You know, if some guy, you know, applies for a job, I interview them. They, you know, they can do the job. They seem like a, a nice guy. I, you know, I try to give them the sort of codes of like we are a nice kitchen everyone is respected for who they are like all of these things so they you know kind of get the like whatever Mm -hmm. clues of like how they should or should not act in this environment but it seems like either almost in every case they end up self-selecting out Mm. or i end up firing them is that you know is that a a common or experience you've had (laughs) as well in that sense you know, at interview, most of the time, I'm like, mm, it's not going to work. No, but also having said that, like I hired a guy called Tim who was Eastern European, amazing addition to mm-hmm. my team at the time. But pretty much most other, there's been a couple actually, I feel bad now in case they hear this and they're like, oh, what about me? <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, yes. Hashtag um, not all white men. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. But for, majoritively, yes, they either well, didn't get past the interview or they got hired and didn't last very long. And by very long, I mean like weeks, months, short amount of time. But, you know, also that was true for men of, like black men that I've hired who were Mm. young black men who I wanted to, 
you know, naively probably think I could shape into the chef I needed them to be or whatever. And I wasn't able to handle that energy, which is Mm -hmm. mostly the boisterousness of their youth, I think, but also a little bit, you know, I I I don't know. I just think men taking instruction from women, especially from a woman who doesn't look her age, and I don't, thank you, Jesus. Mm. Same. (laughs) I think that that was always problematic when it came to men, no matter what the colour was. But, you know, I, I was more inclined to give my black guys probably more of a chance because knowing that Mm -hmm. they would have had less chances generally um, in life. So I probably was more open. I probably took more shit than I should have and tolerated more than I should have. But yeah, you learn, you learn. It sounds like it was because you have a certain level of compassion and understanding for, well, I thought so. Their position as well. No, I I doubt that they would have recognized that or that they would say that about me. Right. that's what was going on for me at the time, you know. But, um, you know, I just learned pretty quickly, actually, that I work better with women who are... Because women are, like, just self-starters, motivated. You don't need to motivate a woman. You don't need to tell a woman a hundred times that a kitchen needs to be clean because women just do it as part of the process. Do you know what I mean? They're just more organised, they're more detailed, they're more motivated, Mm -hmm. more precise, and generally kind of just more fun to work with. Yeah, you know, because they have the yeah. compassion as well and that understanding. Like women are just generally more understanding and forgiving of each other. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of, yeah, giving you the space to be not always cheery. Yeah. And not take it personally. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's just a bit more room. Of comp- I think compassion is the right word. Totally. Um, I, th- we've had so much great interesting conversation. I feel like I've learned so much more about you, Zoe. I feel like I already knew a lot about you. We've known each other for a while now. I think almost three-ish years. Um, And uh, I feel like I've learned so much more. Well, you have, because I've told you stuff I haven't told anybody else, babe. So there you go. There you go. go. And I even, you know, you're like one of the only people in the universe that I let call me babe. Oh. Um, Let's be very clear. There's a very, if anyone is, when you're listening to this and you hear Zoe call me babe, do not think that somehow that means that you could call me babe. <laughs> it's really funny, isn't it? When I, because I'm, this is part of Southeast London. As you can hear, yeah. being from Southeast London is like no T's or H's when I speak and then babe every five minutes. But, um, and I used to make a point when I went go on TV shows or radio interviews and make sure that I called whoever was hosting the show babe to see if I could get away with it always did <laughs> always did um but yeah I understand some people don't like it but it just is I'm sorry it just is my lexicon for people yeah. that um yeah. I, I hold dear you're a babe well why thank you I'll, I'll take I take it definitely as a compliment on that note I've got some questions for you we were calling this the lightning round, but as you know, you're one of our first guests, so we're, we're still kind of figuring a lot of things out because we realized that some of the questions were not necessarily so, you know, lightning fast. They were more complex answers. So don't feel like you need to give a sort of one word answer if there's if it's more nuanced for you. OK, go. Go to favorite pizza toppings. Always pepperoni. And as much meat as possible, honestly. I'm a bit I'm a big fan of a meaty pizza so it's probably got pepperoni and ham as a minimum maybe some ground beef but i'm not a big fan of the ground beef but always pepperoni staying at a friend's house for the weekend what are the three cooking tools that you're going to bring with you Mm. Uh, my salts my spices and a knife all right can you tell me where we can get those salts and spices are those things that we can purchase yeah you can um at zoesgarnerkitchen.co.uk forward slash shop so i'm going to bring my ingredients because my friends won't have them unless I send them to them and and what kind of knife what's your what's your if you're bringing one knife do you know what I'm not this is not a chefy answer and I feel like it's always disappointing because I'm the I'm the kind of chef that uses like two knives for everything Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's just my global knife it's just a nice good chef knife basic all-round all-purpose chef knife 
Okay. I want to know a little bit more before we move on to the next question about the, the spices and salts. Can you tell me like which ones? Like, I mean, I Specifically. You know, I probably have a, yeah, I have a ton of spices, but like, and I know like, which are the ones that you're going to yeah. be like, okay, you can't bring the whole pantry. Yeah. So yeah. All right. I'm going to bring the... grains of Salem. Do you okay. know what they are? So grains of Salem are this beautiful pod. It's got like mm-hmm. a, a, a little barky husk. So it looks like a bit like a caterpillar and you snap it inside mm-hmm. there are seeds. But actually the seeds don't actually provide much flavor or intensity, but it's the husk. It has okay. this amazing eucalyptus, sort of mentholated, jasmine, caraway combination that's incredible. Mm. I mean, it's used as like a, it's used in stocks and stews normally as a, a flavor enhancer, but it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful, wonderful aromatic. Grains of paradise, similarly, okay. is like a hard... Yeah. Um, peppercorn, really tiny, tiny peppercorn. Also goes by the name of alligator pepper. It's tiny, like it's about two mil by two mil, one peppercorn. Mm-hmm. If you bite that, it releases um, this amazing, it, it smells like aromatherapy or something. It has a bit of, um, again, a little bit of eucalyptus, but more, the notes in there are a bit more floral and citrusy. So sometimes a person can taste it and say, oh, that's tastes like strawberries and sometimes a person can taste it and it's like oh it tastes like citrus you know it has very complex flavor packed into this tiny 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 thing and I love to use that instead of just ordinary ground black pepper dawa dawa is it's spelled d-a-w-a-d-a-w-a okay also known in in Nigeria they call it iru it has a lot Mm -hmm. of names all of these ingredients have about 50 different names because each tribe will call it something different Yeah. Um, so is or Iru is the main names that people know that about. But Dawadawa is fantastic. It's fermented locust bean. You would love this one. I'm going to send mm. you some, actually, because I can. Send me some. And it's fermented locust bean. So it's super stinky, like on the nose. Mm. It's hella bad feet smell. Mm-hmm. But again, it's used as a flavor enhancer. It's got deep, rich, umami and savory notes to it. So it's really great for vegan and plant-based cooking, where you want to get that extra savory note there and sort of yeah. de- develop an extra bit of umami without that meat protein. Super great. Um, I make an amazing chocolate. Well, actually, Sarah Held, my wife, makes an amazing chocolate Dawa Dawa um, vegan cake using it's, – it's incredible. Oh, wow. Um, it's a really great – It sounds delicious. Do you use it in savory – use it in savory things, though, as well? Like, Sarah's makes this cake, but it's, is it mainly used oh, it's, in more it's savory? it's mainly savory for sure, yeah. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I like to do – you know, my whole vibe is trying to do other – things with ingredients that people yeah would norm- yeah so normally dawa dawa would be used again as a flavor enhancer or something like that but um and in stocks and stews like it's definitely going to appear in contomre and spinach and agusi for that kind of extra deep level of savory but mm-hmm. i like to experiment with these things and do different things i also make like a, a locust bean broth that i just add to um mm. different things i'm cooking to see like oh i wonder what I know what it's like with a bit of dawa dawa breath in there. You know? <laughs> um, I'm with you. I'm or, with you. I put a little chickpea miso in my uh, asparagus and mushroom pasta last exactly. night. Exactly. And a dawa dawa miso. I got a dawa dawa miso from Shola. Do you know Studio Kitchen mm-hmm. on Instagram? He makes some fucking insane misos, but he made a dawa dawa miso. Anyway, he's an incredible mad African scientist. I'm calling him the Heston Blumenthal of Africa. He does some really great things with these ingredients. I want to ask you the next question, but I need to ask you one thing first while we're on spices and salts, and that is, tell me about this okra salt. Ooh, okra salt. How'd you make it? What's it used in? I've seen it on your website. Yeah, it's one of those amazing, I love things like this because, you know, happy accidents that become a thing? Yeah. That happens a lot. (laughs) Big fan, big fan. Okra salt happened because we were dehydrating okra to, Uh for something entirely different, actually, because I was trying to make a themed dish. We had this idea to do a plate that was evocative of the Cape Coast. And mm-hmm. we were trying to recreate, you know, textures. You know, like when people do fucking sand on a plate and da 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 well, We were trying to recreate some textures and things. So we dehydrated okra to make, like, I don't know. I don't know where it was going to... It's probably going to be like, yeah. oh, that's the edge yeah. of the sea, like where the seabed meets the back in. Yeah. I don't know. I, what. I generally roll my eyes at things like that. Yeah, I know. But, you know it was a poncy idea, I'm just saying. Yeah, I, but, but why not? You're there. But we Keep were playing. Going. We were playing. Yeah. Anyway, and um, 
And I've spilt some of the okra into a bowl of sea salt that I was using for doing something else. And I was like, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, fuck's sake. And then I scooped (laughs) it out and tasted it. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because basically, it it reminded me of, um, well, honestly, it reminded me of like a seaweed salt, you know, but Mm -hmm. much more interesting and intense and just not like okra at all. It had this really deep, deep, Mm -hmm. like sea taste to it which I just thought was extraordinary. And I was like, right, we're doing this. And so dehydrate okra, mix it with salt and then sea salt, good quality salt is important. And then we use it as a finishing salt. It's incredible, especially on certain things. And we're still developing what those things are because we haven't got like all the time in the world working out all the amazing applications. But Mm-hmm. It's it just like on green tomatoes, for example, it oh, it wow, does yeah. something amazing to them. And I don't know enough about the science of food, and I really need to like do more learning in that space. But mm-hmm. even the hibiscus salt, and we figured out that on the um, hibiscus salt on red meat, I was that's exactly what I thought of as soon as you said hibiscus salt. I was like lamb chops, yeah, steak, steak. It's incredible, babe. I cannot yeah. tell you what it does. It just lifts the flavor like a, an extra. 10x you know it really just something about maybe the the bitterness behind the hibiscus i'm not sure what it does Uh but it just draws out the sweetness in the meat and like Mm. oh it's really good um i'll send you some of both of those as well you can play with those please do yeah i love this i interview you and i get gifts (laughs) who is your favorite person to cook for oh to cook for yeah there's been a lot of cool people actually some not so cool, but high profile. <laughs> I won't mention them. <laughs> Do you know, I think it has to be that dinner I cooked at with you, you know, that Beard House dinner. Yeah. Um, you know, fucking Ava DuVernay was there. Wow. That Indeed. Is, that is the best, most Indeed, important Indeed, fucking person. Ava DuVernay was there. Yeah, she ate my food and we, like, we hung out afterwards and we had fun. Yeah, we did. I think that's the most fun <laughs> dinner. Well, don't forget Cynthia Arrivo was there as well. Oh, of course, Cynthia, yeah. What has been your, like, favorite of all of the sort of, you know, you're in the house, you can't leave quarantine, emergency pandemic meal that you've made? Mm. Do you know what? I'm going to be really honest and say that Sarah mm-hmm. has done the majority of the cooking during this mm-hmm. last year's quarantine. She's an amazing mm-hmm. cook. So it's mainly American-Italian things or American-Jewish-Italian things. Right. So, like, matzo ball soup. Mm-hmm. Vodka sauce, homemade pizza. So a lot of Sarah's influence has been dominating our lockdown. I have have a wife who does absolutely no cooking. Um, she oh, has really? a fantastic job, and I'm not mad. She makes sure we have a roof over our head while I do fun things like this. But I have actually cooked. Like as a chef, I always say, like I'm like the worst like chef husband. You know, we've been together for 25 years. Uh, I think this year I've cooked the most at home in my entire life. Oh, I mean, that will be true for sure. Yeah, but like prior, you know, even as a chef, I would just, you know, I'm always like, let's go to our friend's place. Let's go out for brunch. Like, let's order pizza. I'm tired. I've been cooking all the time. (laughs) All of my equipment's at the, oh, I left my knives at work. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, throughout the the last year I've been cooking a lot but like online so I've been cooking for like mm. cooking classes yeah. and demos and cook-alongs and da, da 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 you know what it's like when you're doing stuff like that you don't really want to cook after that for no and you don't even want to eat yeah <laughs> you just want a glass of wine and like to just like sit there exactly <laughs> okay what was your first wow food memory like as a child you tried something that was different than what you were sort of used to in your regular life where you were like wow mind blown Shito, when I first opened a jar of shito, so shito is a super traditional hot pepper sauce that's made usually with either ground uh, smoked prawn or crayfish. So it has Mm. this real deep smokiness behind it and comes in hot, hot or hotter and hotter. It's very hot. (laughs) You know, it's this really dark, it's like black tar dark and then with like loads of flecks of, you know, all the different chili seeds in there. Mm-hmm. and like really oily as well for, for people that aren't familiar with that cuisine I try to liken it to sambal or something like that or like an insane 
kind of an exo sauce that's um yeah i was gonna say if it was like a spicy like your sort of southeast asian shrimp paste exactly but, but it's more yeah. than that but like that for okay. sure but um when yeah. you when I, I remember being like yeah about seven six seven mm-hmm. and you know the pop when the jar pops yeah like i hear the pop now and i can still smell mm. the smell it just blew me away it was just like something that i just never it's like, what is it? You know, and you want to, <laughs> you want to dip your finger into it and go, mm, and then you really regret it because you've just put the hottest fucking thing in the world in your mouth because you're seven and you don't know any better. But yeah, shito and the kenke that was going to be eaten with the shito, like those two things, like fermented maize dough in a ball in a husk, you know, just the look of it, the smell of it, the texture of it mm. was just like, what is it? You know. But even though the spice kind of blew you away at first, you were still drawn to keep going. Oh, I loved back. it. Yeah. I mean, I loved it, you know. Love, 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 love. I can't express how much mm. I fell in love with those ingredients when I was a kid. It's just coming to me as I'm talking. But, you know, I think maybe mm-hmm. part of the obsession with the food was just a distraction from whatever the shit was going on, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, Shito and Kenke, I was just so fascinated because there's just nothing like it. I mean, later on in life, I came to understand that Kenke is quite similar to tamale in terms of texture and taste and things like that. It's made from fermented corn. Um, it's an amazing process. I did, when I went to Ghana, I just tried to learn how to make it myself. I was, I mean, I was really bad at it. <laughs> but yeah, it's that anything that was fermented and stinky and had an unusual texture or taste captured my imagination for sure. I love it. Um, I have one last question for you. What is a fuck up or failure that you really learned from? God, so many. You got to pick one. Fuck. Um, Fuck up or failure that I really learned from. The end of the festival season in 2019. Okay. I got rushed to hospital because they thought I was dying of meningitis. Mm. And I was in intensive care for five or six days. And I had just done a festival season... Like I normally do festival season, which is like fucking wrecking my body for 18, 20 mm. hours a day without sleep, drinking too yeah. much, not eating properly. You know, put the fear into me about how I was showing up in the world. And it made me really question everything, really, um, in terms of the nature of the business, the shape of the mm-hmm. business, what what was adding value and what was distracting and whether I was doing the right thing anymore or whether I'd gone completely off path, you know. It was horrible to be, like, on death's door. But it, the, the gift was I took three months off and came to New York and re-evaluated everything and decided to make Sankofa a priority with Sarah and to have a new narrative around what I was doing in the UK, which was decolonizing the food industry. So, you know, as usual, through failures and through hard times, great Great things usually come from that, don't they? Because we learn. We learn yes. and we grow. Exactly, exactly. I saw something recently that said, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's so good. I like that. I am so happy for you and all of your success and all of the rich and wonderful things you're bringing to our industry. I mean, all over the world, really. Thanks, babe. Thanks to Zoe for joining us. We will be linking to where you can find her, her cookbook, Zoe's Got a Kitchen, as well as her media platform, Black Book, and her upcoming podcast, Cooking Up Consciousness. Thank you all for listening so very much. You can follow Loading Doc Talks in your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please do leave us a review or share it with a friend. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chef P Mystery. And a big shout out to our podcast and music production team, Copper and Heat.